You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, 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 or else you will be condemned. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins." Now, the first thing you may notice, you may be seated uh, in this. I'm going to have you stand for the whole sermon today. Uh, We're going to do it uh, Ezra style. Um, The first thing you may notice in this passage is that I've chosen to group verse 12 with this section rather than the previous. And this is another reminder to us that the, the way that the text is broken up in our various translations is not inspired. So as we're reading the Bible, we should always be careful to remember that those those are there to help us. The editors and translators have given us some guides, but ultimately this is why we need to understand the way that the Bible functions. And the reason I've made this decision is the word of the phrase above all here. It's a very good literal translation of what the scripture says, which is literally above all. It's just a, a straightforward translation. But what this doesn't tell us is that this was actually a very common phrase used in the first century to signal the conclusion of a letter or the conclusion of a statement. So it's probably more um, metaphorically translated as in conclusion. So it didn't seem to make a lot of sense to end last week's sermon with the in conclusion portion of the letter. And what I think this tells us is that this whole last section of the letter is kind of James's final statement, his final closing statement of the letter. And I don't know about you and in the areas that you've, you've worked or gone to school, but I know that I had a professor one time in college who told me that if you're, if your paper is going to be weak, make sure the beginning and the end is really strong because that's what people remember. So I want to make sure that as we go through this here, that's not a new principle. James loads some pretty specific and serious instruction into this last section that is useful for all of us for all times, but I think particularly um, as a local congregation, it's important for us to understand this. He starts off by repeating his, his older brother's teaching that we should let our yes be yes and our no's be no. Now, we shouldn't see this as a sort of universal prohibition against taking oaths. There are those in the Christian um, world who read this that way, 
But there are other places in the Bible where we see people taking oaths, and there doesn't seem to be any hint that that's inappropriate. Instead, what we should see is this is yet another example of James trying to emphasize that the way that we speak, the integrity of our speech, whether it's integrity in terms of just being straightforward and honest, we don't have, people don't have to guess what we mean when we say we're going to do something, they're confident that we're going to do it. We don't have to add all these extra oaths and extra reinforcements on top of them. That's one form of integrity. The other form of integrity in our speech that we've been seeing throughout the whole letter is that we don't use speech as a weapon against other people. We don't use speech to tear down and cut down other people, especially other Christians. There may also be a subtle hint and a, a little bit of a prodding and a poking. If you recall, part of the last section or the section before that was that there was a, a likelihood that some of the Christians, these poor Jewish Christians who'd been cast out into the, the Judean countryside and into the Galilean countryside, that they were being oppressed by these wealthy Jewish landowners. And there was this temptation to use speech to point the finger at someone else, to say, I, I know that you're mad that the crop didn't come in, but really it's this person's fault. Or, if, or to turn on our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and kind of throw them under the bus for their kind of outrageous religious speech. But no, I'm not like that. So that's another form of integrity here. And there may be a subtle hint that there were probably some in the communities that he's writing to who were tempted to, to swear these false oaths, either false oaths in a court of law, which may be what's in view here, or just sort of a false oath in general to sort of get out of trouble, right? When the, when the authorities came and they, uh, they identified that these were Christians and the persecution began, one of the biggest controversies in the early church centered around what happened when they, when they did that. Some Christians succumbed to the temptation to preserve their life. They turned over copies of the scripture and the scriptures were destroyed. Some Christians would, um, they would put a little pinch of incense into the fire and say, well, these are just words. I'm not really worshiping Caesar. Some of them would even buy these certificates, these fake certificates that said they had worshiped Caesar, they had sacrificed to Caesar, and all of those things were seen by the churches out of bounds. There's likely something like that that was going on in the first century, that these Christians who were being called into court, who the, the Jewish landowners were using the authority of the courts to take away their land and to take away their livelihood, there's a likelihood that James here is saying, even in those circumstances, even when you could tell a white lie to save your own life, you still are obligated to speak truthfully. I think that's something that all of us on one level need to hear on a day in and day out basis. It is so easy for us to either directly circumvent the truth by creatively speaking in a way that isn't necessarily a lie, but also isn't the truth, or to stay quiet when we are required to speak truth into the circumstance. Now, of course, those all have wisdom principles that need to be applied in each circumstance. So I'm not here to try to prescribe to you exactly what you must do in every single context. But the principle that we are obligated to speak truthfully and for the benefit of those who hear us, that's the principle that James is getting at here.
we have to remember who the letter is written to if we're to understand this closing section. And as we learned in the beginning, and as I've just said, this is a group of probably Jewish Christians who very early in the church, we read in the book of Acts, that the other James, James the, um, James the brother of John, was thrown off the temple and was killed. And after that persecution started, most of the, um, the day-in, day-out Christians who were not members of the sort of apostolic class or the apostolic group, they scattered out into the countryside. And so they left their homes, they left their farms, they left their families, and now they're out in the countryside trying to scrape out a living. And they're living under this persecution. And so James opens his letter with words of encouragement for them. He opens his letter by saying, all of these things that are happening to you, the persecution in in Jerusalem, the fact that your lands are being taken away from you, the fact that you're separated from your ancestral homeland, the fact that you're suffering under the persecution, uh, political and physical persecution that you're facing, you can count that as joy because of what God will do in your life because of it, what God will do in your life through it. He closes the letter by saying the same thing in a different way. So we also have to, in a certain sense, step out of our context. Most of us, uh, I would venture to say none of us, are facing any sort of immediate, direct kinds of persecution right now. That's not to say there aren't struggles and challenges in our life. It's not to say that we may not face persecution of a type or of a sort in individual situations, but we do not live in a world or we do not live in an area of the world or in a country where there is widespread, systematic persecution of Christians. We have hard circumstances. We sometimes have to make sacrifices to hold our integrity. But at least right now, nobody from the government is spying on our church. I don't think so, at least. But nobody from the government is spying on our church trying to catch us and to shut us down. There may come a day where that happens. We should be ready for that. But as of right now, we're not facing that kind of persecution. All of that said, we may have to step out of our comfortness, our comfortable life, to understand what's going on in this passage. Because even as we get into discussions about healing and sickness and what to do if you're, if you're suffering from illness, there wasn't the option to just drive down the road to a level one trauma center and have healthcare from some of the world's best surgeons and doctors. That wasn't available to people in the first century. In the first century, if you got the wrong kind of virus at the wrong kind of time, you just died a very miserable death. So this, th- what we're going to read here is something that is on one level familiar to us because we all know what it's like to be sick. We all know what it's like to suffer pain and illness. We all know what it's like to have to make a sacrifice or make the tough call and threaten and risk our reputation or our career or our professional livelihood in order to stand for the truth. We've all faced that on some level, but none of us have faced it the way that everyday Christians were facing it in the first century. So keeping that in the back of your mind, we can move on a little bit to what James says here. And he says here in verse 13, is any one of you in trouble? If we were to sort of echo back to what he says in the beginning, He says, is any one of you facing trials of various kinds? 
Well, what should we do? He should pray. This passage of scripture, we sometimes get so bogged down in the controversy and the questions about what does it mean to anoint with oil? What does this healing look like? We miss that this teaching is so plain. It's right in front of our faces. So we'll talk a little bit about what, what the healing principle is and how that seems to function in the text and what that might mean for us. We'll, we'll talk about that. But before we get to that, we have to recognize that this is the most straightforward bread and potatoes Christian teaching that we can get. Is any of you in trouble? Then you should pray. Now, I know in my own prayer life, it, it's it's a constant battle to, to pray as I ought. That's part of why our call to worship today was a reminder that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, that we don't even know how to pray, let alone have the fortitude and the uh, the endurance to pray properly. The Holy Spirit does that for us. He helps us in our weakness, and he prays on our behalf. But this is such a straightforward teaching. It should drive us to that. When I wake up in the morning, and I'm, I'm tired and groggy, and my back hurts, or the baby is waking up at 4.30 in the morning when I really would love it if he slept until 6, or I've got a I've got a meeting at work or I have a doctor's appointment that I'm anxious about. Or last night I discovered the car. I didn't, this didn't actually happen. This is a hypothetical. But last night I discovered that the car won't start anymore. Right? We've all had those days. And most often our first response is not to pray. So if you take anything away from today's sermon, that is the takeaway. That's James's conclusion to the letter. Is any of you in trouble? Are any of you facing trials of various kinds? You should pray. And the flip side of that, says James here, is, is anyone happy? This word in the Greek is a word specifically referring to the internal state of a person. It's probably better for us to understand this as cheerful, but even that doesn't quite get at it. It really is more like what we talk about when we talk about this deep sense of abiding joy. If any of you is in trouble, he should pray. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face these trials of various kinds. James is starting the letter exactly the way, or ending the letter exactly the way that he started it. And if you're in this deep sense of abiding joy, which is given to you by God, once you've prayed, once you've asked him for wisdom, which he is faithful to grant to you, then you should sing songs of praise. Just as we are often slow to pray when we face various troubles, we are probably even slower to sing songs of praise when we are content. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the collection of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision. Uh, I know that you, you've heard, heard some of it read here in the church. The Valley of Vision is, it's a phrase that comes out of the book of Isaiah, but really the, the prayer in this collection of prayers that gives it its name is talking about how when you're in the valley and you're looking up out of the valley, you have a very limited view. And the, the, the Puritan prayer is basically, when I'm in the Valley of Vision, let me see the Lord. That's a, a very rough paraphrase. But we understand that sometimes when we're at our lowest is when we see the Lord the clearest. But when we come out of that valley, 
when we ascend to the peak and we're back at a spot where we feel comfortable, we feel like we have the whole world in front of us, we often forget the Lord. So James here is reminding us, if you need something, ask the Lord for it. Once he's given him given it to you, say thank you. It's so straightforward, we often just miss it. He goes on, in my opinion, he's going on here now to present an example of this situation. Now, there's some specific instructions that he gives, of course, but we've seen James do this throughout the letter, where he brings forward a principle of some sort, and then he uses a specific concrete example that the people in his audience were facing, right? He, he brings forth the example that if you... Uh, if someone says they have faith but has no works, that they have a dead faith, which is to say no faith at all. And the example he uses is the example of speech. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to have faith, but your works are rotten, dirty, stinky water flowing out of a cesspool of your heart, then it shows that you don't actually have a faith of any kind. This is the same way. He presents us with a situation where there's a person who is in trouble. There's a number of markers here in the text that this is not just your everyday illness, right? He says, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, because we have, um, because we have adopted biblical terms, we often talk about to pray over this. I'm going to pray over that. I'm going to pray over this. I prayed over your concern this morning. It's become sort of this meta metaphysical or metaphorical word we just attach to the word pray, and it doesn't actually mean anything. In the Bible, when you pray over someone, you're literally over them. So the picture we have here is someone who is so sick, they have to summon the elders to their house because they can't get out of their house. And the elders are standing over them probably because they're bedridden. The standard posture for prayer in the first century was standing. There isn't a prescription. We don't have to always stand when we pray. We don't have to always kneel. But the standard way that people prayed, both in the Jewish church prior to the coming of Christ and also following Christ, was standing. So for someone to be praying in a laying down position was, was abnormal. So what we have here is this picture of a seriously ill person, probably on the verge of death, who is calling for the elders of the church to come and pray over them. And this is where the church, I think, historically gets a little wonky. The Roman Catholic Church has turned this into a second, another sacrament. They call it extreme unction, where the person comes, the priest comes and prays, and there's this, this communication of grace that removes sin at the moment of a person's death. That's nowhere found in Scripture, certainly not here. On the flip side, some Christians in their zeal to oppose that have acted as though this is actually the, the pastors coming and using medicine. We see in various places in the Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan is a good example where oil is used as medicine, right? This guy gets beat up on the road. The guy uh, finds him and brings him to the inn. And what does he do? He pours oil and wine on his wounds. Oil was a well-known medicinal thing in the early century. It moisturized. It was used to keep wounds from scabbing over and getting infected. That's not what's going on here. Oil was not prescribed for every illness. 
And it really wasn't prescribed much for illness. It was really prescribed for injury. What we have here, I think, and I think the, the majority of, of the Protestant church has understood it this way, is that oil here is used as a symbolic way to set this person apart and to mark them off for God's special attention. It's the elders of the church coming and making a visible statement that this person is to be given direct attention by God. Now, that's a little bit weird for us because we are very quick to understand that God doesn't need to focus his attention anywhere. But we do see this in various places in the Bible. We're not going to go to these examples. But there's a, a passage in the book of uh, Ezekiel in chapter 9, and it's, there's similar language in the book of Revelation, probably drawing from Ezekiel, where God sends forth this man who you, I think you, you see later in the book, this man that we're seeing is actually kind of a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. But he sends forth this man into the city and he says, mark the heads of everyone who has remained faithful to me. And then immediately after he does that, he sends a destroying angel into the city who slaughters everyone who has remained unfaithful. And so the person going into the city, the man going into the city and marking the foreheads of those who were faithful is setting them apart for some purpose. That, I think, is what's going on here. There's nothing magical about the oil. It's not some mystical thing. Oil does sometimes um, represent the Holy Spirit in the Bible, uh, and the application of oil in the Bible sometimes represents uh, a commissioning for a specific task. But here it is a simple matter of identifying who it is that's being prayed for and visually signifying that God is faithful to pay attention to the prayers of the elders here. I want to indulge in a little bit of a side note here, because I think when we come to these things in the scripture where we're given an opportunity to understand the structure of the early church, we ought to take advantage of that. And there's a subtle hint here of the, the polity or the structure of the early church that we shouldn't miss. Just reading this passage, we see that a, a number of features. There's a plurality of elders. It doesn't say to call the pastor or the elder. It says to call the elders. At this church, we have an elder board. We have a plurality of elders. We have a deacon there's a plurality in leadership. That's a principle that we see in the Bible. There's also a distinction between the elders and the non-elders. Now, this distinction can be way overblown, but there's elders that you summon to pray, and then there's everyone else who we find out later are also instructed to pray. There's a sense here that the elders have a specific official role in setting someone apart for God's attention. Now, this is probably the most mysterious part of this, but the pastors of the church, the elders of the church, represent God to the people in a particular way and represent the people to God in a particular way. It's similar to the priesthood of the Old, Old Testament, although not exactly the same. We see that a little bit more explicitly in that the elders act in the name of the Lord. They're not just coming as members of the church. They're not just coming as the leaders of the congregation. They come as emissaries 
and ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. They come with his authority, which has been delegated to them, and they act in that authority. And even though the elders have a specific official response to this, there's a prescription for how the elders are to act when they are summoned to pray for the sick. There's a mirroring of that role that the congregation also participates in. See that coming up here. Right here in the book of James, you, you would miss it if you didn't slow down. We see how the early church is structured. And what's more, James is not writing to an individual congregation. He's not writing to the church in Corinth or the church in Rome or the church in Ephesus or the church in Canaan, New Hampshire. He's writing to a group of Christians who likely belong to several different churches. That tells us that this was enough of a uniform system, a uniform setup in the early church, that he could write to various Christians and they would all have the same basic experience. There are lots of movements in the church these days that will tell us that the way we do church, the way that church is structured, some coming from outside of the church, critical sources that are attacking the church, capital C church, and some from within the church that want to reinvent how we, how we do church and have done church for 2,000 years. The Bible assumes a model of church structure. It assumes that Paul, who has never been to the church in Rome, can write to the church of Rome and know who is a member there. That assumes some sort of formal membership. He knew, even though he had never met them, he knew who was there. James assumes that the people he's writing to know who he's talking about when he says, call the elders of the church. Nobody thought, oh, I wonder who, the, who my elders are. They knew. They had elders that they were accountable to, who were responsible for and accountable to them. That's baked into the, the structure here. That was my little doctrinal side note. This passage, though, can often be abused. And I think we've all experienced this on one level or another. So I want to say loud and clear. Anyone who tells you that your ailment or your lack of healing is directly a resultant of a lack of faith is most likely wrong and is not in any position to tell you that. So I used to be a part of a large charismatic church when I was uh, living in Minneapolis. And we had a, a young woman who had some sort of, I think it might have been scoliosis or spina bifida or something along those lines. And she was confined to like a, a, a motor chair kind of a thing for most of her teenage life. Um, I remember distinctly being at a prayer retreat and someone commanded her in Jesus' name to get up and walk. And she got up and she fell on her face. And the first thing that someone did was tell her that it was because she lacked faith. That is demonic lies from the pit of hell. And that is a lie from Satan designed to undercut the assurance and perseverance of the saints. So if you are ever in a church or in a meeting where someone says that, just get up and leave. All of that said, though, everything in this text seems to indicate that what James is commanding and what James is assuming is that God answers the prayers for healing when the elders come and anoints. 
Now, there's a difference between a general promissory statement, kind of a proverbial statement that is generally true, and a promise that is always true in every circumstance. And we can see there are textual marks in here that demonstrate this is a promissory statement, not a specific, concrete, individual promise. But we see this in, in uh, the book of Proverbs. There's a statement like, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is generally true. Children who live and grow in a, a, um, a family that is devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and is faithfully bringing them into the church and teaching them the scriptures and and teaching them to love Jesus, generally speaking, those children remain in the faith. But we know, not always. There's other statements where in the Psalms where David says, I've never seen the servants of the Lord go hungry. I will guarantee you that there is a faithful Christian somewhere in Africa today who starves to death. That's the world we live in. And so although it is generally true that the Lord provides, we know from just what James has taught us that sometimes he allows us to suffer in trials. Sometimes he allows us to go hungry. Sometimes he allows us to have a child who departs from the way. Or he allows us to have deep, difficult conflict with family members or friends. He allows us to lose a job or to suffer a diagnosis. Sometimes he heals. And we should, when we pray for healing, it is okay for us to expect that the Lord will heal us. Right? James says in the beginning of the book, let the person ask with, with faith without doubting. If you go to the Lord and you ask him for healing, you ask him to restore your relationship with your child or we ask him to provide for the funds for the car and you don't really think he can do it, you're literally acting like a crazy person. That's what James says. You're an unstable person in all of your ways if you ask the Lord for something you don't believe he can give you. But we also should not draw the conclusion that if he doesn't provide that healing in whatever area of our life we're praying about, that that means somehow we have not got faith. We have to ask in faith, and we also have to trust in the Lord to give us the answer that is according to his will and his wisdom. This should be even more reinforced when we think about the fact that immediately prior to this, he uses the example of Job. I don't know how anyone can look at this text and think, well, James is talking about Job here, and then, of course, he promises healing in every circumstance. Why would he use the example of, of a man who's set out as righteous before the Lord, who then suffers, the text holds out, on no account of his own. He's not suffering because of any known sin, whether any sin at all. It's entirely these things going on behind the scenes. Why would we think that James then shifts to say like, well, yeah, there was Job, but everybody else. Everybody else, if you're suffering, it's because of sin. Everybody else, if you're not being healed, it's because you lack faith. He goes on here to say that the sick person, uh, if, it, if the prayer is offered in faith, and this is the prayer of the pastors and elders offered in faith, the Lord will make him well again and the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. There is an element here in the text that we 
probably don't love to hear, but we have to, we have to address it. Sometimes our suffering is because of sin. Sometimes we get, we get sick because we make bad decisions. Sometimes that's the natural consequence of it. If I spend my entire life eating junk food, then I'm probably going to develop heart disease and diabetes, right? If I stay up all night um, watching TV and I don't get enough sleep, then I'm probably going to get the flu and it's going to be worse than if I didn't. That's certainly true. But sometimes we get sick and sometimes people die because of the spiritual implications of their sin. We see this in the opening book of in the opening of the book of Acts. Ananias and his wife Sapphira come and they lie to the church about how much they sold a field for. And God strikes them dead right on the spot. We we would probably see this as someone having a, a catastrophic heart attack if there was to be an autopsy. That's probably what happened. Their heart just stopped. But a more subtle way, as we see in, in Paul's instructions on the Lord's Supper, he says, those who have failed to properly discern the body, some of you are sick and have even fall asleep, fallen asleep because of that. There were people in the early church because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion and failing to discern the body. Whatever that means, that's a discussion for a different sermon. They got sick and died. That is not... Um, we should be very careful to assume the Lord no longer does that. There are probably times where wicked people suffer and die, and it is God's direct punishment on their life. There are probably times where Christians suffer and they fall ill and even die, and it is a result of God's fatherly discipline in their life. The outcome is different for those people, but the, the mechanism is somewhat similar. But just like we can't draw the conclusion that just because someone is not healed, that means that there's no faith, we also can't draw the conclusion that because someone is sick, that there is some sort of unconfessed sin in their life. But we do have to ask the question. And this is where James closes his letter. We're going to skip over the section here where he talks about Elijah. That, that point is very straightforward. Elijah was just an ordinary guy. His prayers were powerful, not because of him, but because of the God he served. But James says here in verse 16, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And then jump down to 19. He says, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The pastors and the elders of the church and the deacons of the church have a particular responsibility. Our own church constitution assigns the elders uh, and the pastor, who is also an elder, a particular responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the church, for the spiritual well-being of the individuals in the church. It also assigns to our deacon the responsibility to be prepared to support the pastor and the elder in, in serving the church and caring for the spiritual and physical needs of the church. But that task is not limited to the pastors and the elders. If congregation member A is aware that congregation member B is, is in some sort of deep sin, 
there's a responsibility first and foremost to pray for that person, to pray that the Lord would bring them back, to pray that the Lord would turn them from those wicked ways. But there's also a responsibility for us to go and get that person. Jude says we snatch people out as if irons from the fire. This is not a gentle action. Now, we have to be kind and gracious, and we restore people with a spirit of gentleness, but there is a little bit of urgency here. If, if my son August was running to the street, I'm not going to try to reason with him. I'm going to run and I'm going to grab him. And that may mean that we fall and he gets scraped up because I had, to, I had to tackle him to stop him from running into the street. But that's a loving action that I take on the behalf of my son. He's not going to like it. There's probably going to be a scar. But it's better than getting hit by a car, right? Or falling down the stairs or whatever thousand other things that little kids try to do to kill themselves. It is the same thing on a spiritual level with our brothers and sisters. And oftentimes we are fearful of doing that. We worry about the relational impact that it may have. We may be concerned that it'll disrupt the peace of the church or that it may push them further into their sins. All of those things are worth considering. But at the end of the day, the Bible warns us, and I'm, I'm not going to pretend to fully understand how exactly this works in light of our understanding of predestination and election. I'm not going to pretend to understand exactly how this works. But what the Bible says is that a person can trample on the blood of Christ, and if that person does and finally turns away, that they will never be saved. It is better to tackle our brothers and sisters and to scrape them up a little bit than it is to let them plunge into hell. So all of, all of what James is saying here is consistent. A person who is in trouble, whether it's external trouble or internal trouble of the soul, they should pray. They should seek the elders and their brothers and sisters should pray for them and do what needs to be done to restore them. That's the takeaway. That's James's message. That's how he concludes this message. So we ought to think about that and we ought to pray about that as we come here every week. As we think and pray about our brothers and sisters throughout the week. Are we praying that God would bring their sins to their mind? Are we praying that God would convict them of their sins and restore them to full fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Are we praying and asking the Lord to reveal our own sins to us? I'm tempted to, to list sins, but I would probably just be listing my own sins, which would be okay. But luckily the clock is going to save me on that one. So let's, let's be there for each other. Let's pray for each other. Let's care for each other. And sometimes we need to rough each other up a little bit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your servant James, for your brother James, that you have blessed us with his writing that you have given us insight into your mind through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which James wrote by. We also thank you that uh, because of his uh, earthly relationship to you, that you have given us some special insight into your own upbringing through some of the common phrases that he uses. 
But most of all, Lord, we thank you that you have revealed to us the gospel of your salvation in James's words. So I pray, Lord, that as we move on to another book, as we move on to other studies, that you would keep the teaching that we have learned from this book in the front of our mind, that you would change us and transform us, that the warnings in the book of James and the cautions in the book of James would be big, bright signs telling us of danger. And that also the guidance that he's given us would be clear directions on the road to salvation and the road to sanctification. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.